Almighty God, in this season of Easter, we give you thanks for the gift of eternal life and for the gift of your holy scripture. Now turn our minds to it, awaken our hearts with it, and set us on fire. And now may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We uh, started chapter 15 of Paul's letter to the Romans last week. I would like to reread the first six verses, which is where we actually stopped, but I wanted to make a point or two about it. Before we do, let's remember what's gone before, because it's worth recapping. The first part of Paul's epistle deals with God's wrath specifically the problem of the law, how it's perfect, but because we are imperfect, we can't keep the law, and therefore we are without any refuge in the law. We cannot save ourselves through the law. The second part of his epistle deals with God's grace, particularly justification, how what we could not do through the law, Christ did for us through his, um, his sacrifice once offered. And then the third section of the epistle deals with God's plan, particularly God's plan for the Jews to redeem all of Israel back to him through Christ, notwithstanding that the Jewish nation did not recognize their Messiah when he was there. um, Paul's point was that God's plan for the Jews is by no means frustrated. And of course, what he also means in broader brush is that God's plan for the rest of the world, which had not accepted Christ or had rejected Christ, was by no means frustrated. It will all be fulfilled, and it will all be in his plan. The whole world will be um, redeemed through Christ to him. And then the final part of the epistle, where we are now, is about God's will, and particularly God's will for how believers deal with one another. In the first half, all of chapter 14 and the first half of chapter 15 are uh, are wrestling with that question. So with that in mind, how we deal with one another in harmony, let's reread quickly. I want to make a point or two about uh, verses 1 through 6 in chapter 15. We who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of building up the neighbor. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction so that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was an explicit call for unity among the believers. But note that... um, In verse 3, Paul quotes Psalm 69. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And his point was that 
Christ was the fulfillment of that psalm. The insults that were aimed at God had fallen on Christ at the crucifixion. And because Christ, through his crucifixion and resurrection, has accepted all of us, we have an obligation to accept one another. Christ accepted each of us, including the weak brethren, and we dealt with those in chapter 14, those who had some objection to eating meat or those who had some other ritual objection, and Paul was taking the, 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 the church body as a group to say, deal with those weaknesses in a way that don't in a way that will not cause stumbling blocks to one another. And so his point here is, again, because uh, Christ has accepted even the weakest, then we must accept even the weakest. And because Christ has accepted all of us, we accept one another. Now note the line about um, in, in, in verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Does anybody recognize that? Does that ring a bell from the collects? I'll give you a clue. We don't read it in the... It was originally written as the collect for the fourth... No, the second Sunday in Advent. But the collect that we... we read two or three times during the year, O God who has called all Holy Scripture to be written for our understanding. I don't know if Cranmer took that directly from chapter 15, but it's the same, it's the same point. Paul was saying that all of this Scripture, this Old Testament Scripture, because there wasn't any New Testament Scripture yet when he wrote this, um, all of this was written for our understanding, that is, our understanding of who the Messiah was and was to be and will be once he is revealed. So let's move forward from that and somebody read for us verses 7 through 13 in Romans chapter 15. 7 through 13, it's not a long passage and it doesn't have any hard words. Anybody want to volunteer? Mike, you want to do yeah, it? Sure. All right, do it. <clears throat> Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written... Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Thank you. Well read. Paul likens, well, Paul gives us four 
Old Testament quotes. It's very like Paul, especially when he's addressing himself to Jews. Now, Paul is writing to the church in Rome. It has always been my understanding that the church in Rome was largely Jewish. We have churches all over the Eastern Roman Empire, but not very many in the Western Roman Empire yet. It hasn't, the evangelism hasn't spread that far yet. The church in Asia Minor was largely Greek because Asia Minor, all of those provinces in what are today modern Turkey, was populated by Hellenized, that is, Greekified Gentiles. There were Jewish communities in all of those cities. And we remember in the book of Acts how when Paul would go to a new city on one of his missionary journeys, the first thing he would do was go to the synagogue to preach to the Jews that Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was Christ the Messiah. Often he would get tossed out of the synagogue, but a few would believe him. And then he would go to the Greeks. He would often set up shop just like right across the street from the synagogue. So the, the church in Asia Minor, like the church in uh, the province of Syria, Judea and Samaria and uh, Galilee, was a mix of Jew and Greek. Uh, or Jew and Gentile. But when Paul writes to the church in Rome, there aren't very many Gentile believers in Rome. Most of them are converted Jews, and they probably picked it up from being, there had always been a, an active Jewish community in Rome. We remember, as Steve pointed out, that earlier the emperor Claudius had kicked the Jews out of Rome because they had been just too quarrelsome. But when the and of course the, the Christian church was considered to be a sect of Roman law considered it to be a, a sect of the Jewish church. So when the um, when the Orthodox Jews got kicked out, so did the so did the Christian church. But when they were back, of course, under Emperor Nero, um, then once again the uh, the Christian church, which was largely Jewish, was back in Rome, and that's who Paul is writing to. He hasn't visited them yet, but I believe that probably the fact that he addresses them with these four Old Testament scriptures is a, a very notable, I, I think it's, it's a clue that the early church in Rome was mostly converted Jews and not very many Gentiles yet. Um, which is to say in the Eastern Roman Empire, the, the Greeks had become Christianized in a way that the Italians had not yet. Four Old Testament quotes. And Paul basically says, he, he, he is using these quotes to make two points, or rather two purposes of Christ. First, to be the Messiah to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, and number two, to bring the Gentiles into 
God's covenant with Israel. Two, two purposes. Look at the four quotations. Number one, which is, cha- which is verse 9, the second half of verse 9. Therefore, I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. That comes from Psalm 18. Um, David, wrote, who wrote Psalm 18, is essentially saying that David will praise Yahweh in the presence of the Gentiles as a sort of an example to the Gentiles. Look at me praising the one true God. That's the point in um, Psalm 18. Look at the second quote. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Moses, in his long speech, his long sermon to the Israelites, just before Moses dies and before they enter the promised land, Moses says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, to the, to the non-believers. Rejoice with his people, with the Jews. So, in the first quote, David will praise Yahweh in the presence of the Gentiles as an example. In the second quote, the Gentiles are being invited to praise Yahweh like the Jews do, along with the Jews uh, who who are praising him. Look at the third quote. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. That's from Psalm 117. And here, the Gentile nations are being invited to praise Yahweh on their own. There's no implication that they're praising along with the Jews. It's praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, all the peoples praise him. That is, you know, all of the nations. And then the third, the, the fourth quotation, Isaiah. This one he actually attributes to Isaiah. The root of Jesse shall come. The one who, will, who rises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall have hope. Here, Isaiah is prophesying that the Messiah will come out of the root of Jesse, which is to say out of the line of David, which... We know from the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he did. He will rule all of the Gentiles, but will be their hope. That is, in Isaiah, he quotes Isaiah in the most fulfilling way that this Christ will come as the Messiah of the Gentiles, but will also be the hope, the Messiah of the Jews, but will also be the hope of the Gentiles, to bring the Gentiles into the covenant. Note that it's not a separate covenant with the Gentiles. It is the Gentiles being brought into the original covenant. We call this the New Testament, the New Covenant, but what it really means is that the New Covenant is the promise that God made to the Jews through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is now the promise made to all of the world through Christ the Messiah. Note that these four quotations come from the three major sections of the Old Testament. In Jewish 
in the in the Jewish theology of the way they they viewed their Old Testament canon, there was the law. That's the first five books, and that's of course where um, Deuteronomy is found. There's the prophets, and that's where Isaiah is found. And then there are what they call the writings. That is the first and second book of Kings, the first and second book of Chronicles and Samuel and and Job and the Psalms. So the two Psalms come out. Of, so we can have here represented all three of the um, of the organized sections of the Old Testament scripture. And I think that that's relevant that Paul, who is the ultimate Old Testament scholar, being a being a Pharisee, being a Pharisee who trained under Gamaliel, the Pharisee of all Pharisees, the great, the great Oz of Pharisees, um, he is he is um, very significantly speaking about how the Gentiles are now invited to participate and to be along with the Jews that part of the covenant. But he makes clear that the covenant came first through the Jews. And that's why I call this little lesson the light into the Gentiles. Because that is the way the Jews have always seen themselves. And it's from their scripture. Any thoughts about that? Frank? My memory may be faulty. I certainly don't remember what part of the Bible it was. It was a discussion that seems like to me that we had a discussion in this class and maybe three years ago, maybe sometime, that... And I'm, I'm going back to the first part of this reading about living together in harmony. And, mm-hmm. and um, but it seems to me that we discussed that, that the responsibility, or that there was a, a theory that the responsibility of, Christi- of Christians in the group was the church. That if there was a sinner, somebody who's a known adulterer or a murderer or a mother, that we had a responsibility as individuals to call a guy out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have had that conversation, yes. Does that, do you see any conflict in that and what we just, the early part of the thing we read, don't insult anybody or we all get, get along and leave, you know, I, I just, I'm trying to get my... No, I don't see a conflict and here's why. And this is the point, I believe, that's important when Paul addresses this section, this question in the will of God about how believers deal with one another, how we deal with one another in love, in the particular how the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians deal with one another, but also in the larger context about how all believers, it's just not particular to the early church, it's it's to all believers and it's relevant to all of us, how we deal with one another. And it is this. Well, let me go back. A few years ago, um, Dean Limehouse had a series in the dean's class where he invited various members of the vestry to address in consecutive weeks a specific modern Christian heresy. Well, of course, modern Christian heresies are just old-fashioned Christian heresies dressed up in, in its old wine and new skins, really. And I remember that Jack Sharman took on the prosperity gospel as as preached by Joel Osteen, but as preached by many others. And the one that I addressed is the 
is the heresy about the most important thing in uh, the church being unity. We were all called at the time, we're always called, to be united, united in the face of controversy, united in the face of this or that. And I took my text from the first letter, the first epistle of John, but I could just as easily have taken my text from um, chapters 14 and 15 in Romans, and here's why. Because Paul is making clear in the context of his entire epistle that we have two considerations. And your question is when we're dealing with when we're dealing with Christian doctrine and when we're dealing with love. And should our love overcome our allegiance to Christian doctrine? And it deals with fundamentals and non-fundamentals. Now, Paul's first two organized sections of his epistle are about law and grace. And those are fundamentals. When he was writing about meat, eating meat or not eating meat, or observing some sort of ceremonial ritual dress or not, he was writing about a non-fundamental, what Paul Zoll used to refer to as a penultimate. The ultimates are the fundamentals of our faith. The penultimates are the, the things which are not fundamental to our faith or which, as sometimes we jokingly say, Nobody's salvation depends on this. Nobody's salvation turns on whether we burn incense or not, or whether we um, whether we face east when we recite the creed or not. You know, it's a it's a nice little thing that we do for a reason that we remember, and it causes us to remember, but it's not a fundamental. Well, the differences in denominations I submit to you that they are. That, that, that yes, that's the perfect illustration, Dick, that um, one could read in chapter 14 Paul's treatment of how we, we don't cause one another to stumble by eating meat or not eating meat in the presence of others who are weaker. So if I go to an Episcopal church where they stand through the prayers rather than kneel, I'm going to stand along with them because I don't want to, I don't want to get in any, anybody's way. I don't want to interfere with or in some way disrupt the way their worship leads them to God. Um, but back to fundamentals. And, and this, is, um, this is where, Frank, I, I think, your, your question ultimately goes. And I can't improve on the way Stott has put it, so I won't try. I'll just, I'll just quote to you Stott. He says, as the fundamentals, faith is primary, and our love for one another cannot be used to deny the essential issues of Christian doctrine. But as to non-fundamentals, love is primary, and our zeal for our particular sense of doctrine cannot excuse our failure to love one another. Does that make sense? I mean, I hear what you're saying, but I don't know that that, that answers the fundamental, I mean, just 
practical question of if you have, if you're, as a, as a, as a church, if you have somebody who has been convicted of a terrible crime, say murder, and, and is out on appeal, are we as Christians, all being sinners, of course, are, are we expected to welcome this person? Are we supposed to, if the jury of his peers is found guilty, because I'm making this all up as I go along. I, I get that. But, um, <laughs> but are we, it seems like we talked one time about if somebody like that is in the congregation, you just expel them. Well, there may be differences of opinion on this, but the place that I think that most churches would draw the line is between, um, in, in that situation, is between merely participating and coming to God's altar, which we all do based upon grace and nothing else, and being elected to or serving in some sort of leadership position in the church. I remember... Um, hearing, and I don't remember which dean it was, but said that once he had a member of the vestry who was carrying on in a notorious extramarital affair, and along with the wardens, <coughs> met with that person and said, you can no longer serve as a member of the vestry while this notorious affair is going on. You've got to repent of it, and then, but right now you can't. Now that's where I I believe the line is properly drawn. There may be differences. Of, there there certainly are differences of opinion about that. But I, I would never believe that that a person should be barred from from receiving communion who who, who comes to the church to receive communion. Let that be between that person and God as to whether. The uh, the sacrament is properly being uh, properly being accessed. But there's no, as far as we know, there's no scriptural mandate that you have to. As an individual, or we as a church have to take some action in whatever form to either help this person or, or get them out. Or well, the uh, well. Let me address that. Going back to the text that I used in that unity um, talk from the first epistle of John, he wrote to believers about certain false prophets who were preaching to the believers under false a false flag, so to speak, who were intentionally preaching heresy for the purpose of um, uh, of misleading believers about Christ the Messiah. They had certain views that I believe John used a, a word forward thinking, but basically that they were out ahead of and outside of Christian truth. And he said that you should always welcome them with love, but you should never give them your pulpit. Okay? So, um, I, so I, I guess the answer to your question is yes. I do know that there is scriptural authority for denying the pulpit to those who are preaching heresy, but uh, it's not for me uh, to 
hypothetically address every potential heresy that could be. Let's quickly, before we run out of time in the bell, I want to, it's a long passage, but not all that long. The rest of the um, chapter 15, verses 14 through 33, make some interesting points, and I think it's, it's worth talking just for a minute about them. If we want to divide them up, we can do that. Maybe somebody read 14 through, uh, uh, through 21 and then 22 through 30. Somebody volunteer for the... Margie will do the first one. Who will do the second? Brian, would you do it? Sure. All right. Margie, you read 14 through 21. I myself am satisfied about you, brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, Illyricum, Mm -hmm. I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Thank you. This is the reason why I have, I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for working in Ephesians, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped in my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make the contributions for, for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they are also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea that my service to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Thank you. Thank you both. Um, So Paul is giving first an explanation in the passage that Margie read, sort of the 
he's starting to wind down his epistle here, and he's giving his he's putting his ministry into a proper context for his readers. And then in the passage that Brian read, he is giving a a, a future statement about where he intends to go next. First, in the uh, passage that Margie read, 14 through 16, it sounds like he's taking them to the woodshed a little bit, but he's not really. One of the um, one of the commentators described this as a courteous apology. He sort of he's praising diplomatically praising the church in Rome, essentially saying, "I I, I know that you're really strong in your belief in your believers. I set these things out for you only kind of as reminders." But then in the um, note that he he, he quotes. Um, in verse 21, he quotes again from Isaiah. That's Isaiah 52. And his statement is that I intend to preach the gospel where it has never been before. I'm going back to Jerusalem, but only because I have a mission. And that mission, as Brian read, was to deliver some, uh, some alms that had been raised to be taken back to Jerusalem. And we remember in the book of Acts that when Paul got back to Jerusalem, the first thing he did was to go and see James, the brother of Jesus, who was a church leader, and to deliver those alms that had been collected in Greece. That was the reference to Macedonia and Achaia, which was northern Greece and southern Greece, the two Roman provinces that together make up what is today modern Greece, and uh, that's where he had been, and he was taking those alms back to Jerusalem, and then from there, he was going to go to Spain. That would be his next missionary journey. Well, we know he never got there. He, he died. He was martyred in Rome, but his plan was to go to Rome and then go to Spain. Well, notice in the passage that Margie read that he said that he had preached for all, from Jerusalem as far around as Illyricum. Now, Illyricum was the Roman province on the eastern shore of the Adriatic Sea, what is today Bosnia and Serbia and um, the former Yugoslavia. Now, he may have been using a little bit of hyperbole. As I read my map, unless the Romans drew the the provincial line much further south than, than I imagine it, he probably didn't get that far, but he got real close. You know, he was up in Macedonia. So his point was that his preaching, his, his ministering, his um, evangelizing had been as far and wide as the church exists. And his plan is to take it beyond where the church had been before because, again, quoting... Isaiah, his intent is to preach in regions that had never heard the gospel. So he was going to go to Spain. And that is the way that we are able to identify, if we cross-reference back in the book of Acts, look at what is written in Acts chapter 21. Uh, or rather chapter 19, verse 21. Now, after these things had been accomplished... 
Paul resolved in the spirit to go through Macedonia and Achaia and then go on to Jerusalem. He said, quote, after I have gone there, I must also see Rome, end quote. So we know this little detail in his letter to the, to the Romans, to the church in Rome, tells us that his letter was written during his third missionary journey while he was still in uh, either in um, Achaia in southern Greece or was back in the, um, in the provinces in Asia Minor. So that, that day, it, it gives us a, a, a little ring of truth, and we know from the, um, from the subsequent chapters in the book of Acts that that's exactly what he did. He went back to Jerusalem, he took those alms, his plan was to go on to Spain, but of course he was arrested while he was back in Judea. He has asked for prayers that the, uh, that the unbelievers in Judea, this is verse um, 31, uh, shall not hinder his uh, ministry. Well, of course, the unbelievers in Judea tried to hinder his ministry. They arrested him. But what they intended for ill, God turned into good because the, uh, the, the trip from uh, under arrest from, uh, from Judea to Rome, as we saw at the end of the book of Acts, resulted in that was Paul's fourth missionary journey. It was entirely under arrest, but it was, um, it was a missionary journey. So with that, I will wrap up today. That wraps up chapter 15. Next week, there is no Christian ed because it's uh, Confirmation Sunday. The week after that, we will do chapter 16, which is all of Paul's greetings to the saints in the early church, uh, uh, greetings from the saints in the early church, and his exhortations to the church in Rome. And then we will, on May 17, our last meeting, we will do a summing up of the epistle to the Romans in the context of all of the Holy Scripture that we studied before. So, see you in two weeks.